Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at RightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. We'd also like to thank Helping Hands and OSA EMR for their support of the show. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7. Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. Well, Sharon, (laughs) welcome to the studio. Yeah, you look like you're at the beach with your backdrop, but I really am at the beach. I know, you're in the closet. Are you coming out today? (laughs) (laughs) I keep looking at that door behind you going, is Sharon in the closet? You know, where is she right now? Well, it's the resort. I'm at the resort and it's my bedroom, but I didn't want to turn around so that you guys could see the bed. Did did you make the bed today, (laughs) Sharon? the door. Did you make the bed today? I make the bed every day. Okay, I am one of those people. As soon as my feet hit the floor, that's the first thing I, I do. I have to make the bed. Have to you what? I have to make, not wet the oh. bed, make the <laughs> bed. I have to make the bed yeah. every day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would, I would have thought, I thought you said you didn't to begin with. And that just not. See, when it came out, I thought I said confused. I wet the bed. I, well, I you boot, may. You know, I don't so, want to go anyway. there, and I know our guest does not want to know. If uh, well, I, I think we have a, an amazing podcast set up here today, and I know we're excited to get Robin Finney with us today. Welcome, Robin. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Sharon. It's good to be here with you. Yeah, I know that Sharon's been talking to me about you for a long time, so we're elated to have you on the show today and why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about you and your background for those that might not know you sure so my name is robin finney and i am a practicing certified registered nurse anesthetist in rochester minnesota i do work at the mayo clinic half time i provide anesthesia in an outpatient surgery center using a non-medically directed model And then the other three days of the week, I teach future nurse anesthetists. I do have a small FTE granted to um, sustain and maintain the second victim peer support program that I created. Great. And and we're looking forward to hearing more about that today since that is our topic. Yeah. And unfortunately, it is a very 
timely topic. And so that's one reason why I was particularly excited that we finally was able to work this out. Yeah. So why don't we just kick it off here and dive into it and you kind of tell us a little bit about, you know, second victims and, you know, why this is important and what you'd like to get across to our listeners today. Sure. So second victim is a concept that unfortunately we don't talk about on a regular basis. And I think over the last decade, we're starting to hear more about it and starting to acknowledge that we as healthcare professionals are caring for patients. And although we all went into nursing or medicine or any aspect of healthcare to care for others, you know, through the work that we do and through the experiences that we have, it quickly becomes apparent that sometimes it hurts to care. And especially over this last 10, 11 months with this pandemic that sprung upon us, the well-being of every individual, of every human being is of utmost importance. But when you think about the healthcare providers on the front lines being thrown into uncertain conditions, caring for very sick patients, doing things outside of their daily routine, and being subjected to ethically challenging cases and morally distressful cases, the well-being of all of us needs to be at the top of everybody's priority list. And so the concept of second victim comes from a physician at Johns Hopkins, Dr. Albert Wu, and he first coined this term in 2000. And if you look at his definition, he really focused on physicians who were emotionally traumatized after making a medical error. 10 years later, Dr. Sue Scott, who is an RN at University of Missouri Healthcare System, and her colleagues came up with a consensus definition encompassing all of us healthcare providers who are involved in any adverse patient event or any stressful or traumatic clinical event that is likely to evoke emotional distress. And so it really encompasses any healthcare team member who is either directly involved in these really difficult events or indirectly involved. So even people who are observing or our health unit secretaries who are logistically involved can have emotional distress after any of these types of events. Now, I notice you talk about second victim. That's the provider. The first victim is the victim, I guess. And now you've introduced another term, the third victim. And what is that? Because I hear second victim all the time, but I'm not familiar with third. The third set of victims encompasses three different types of individuals. The first and most important are our subsequent patients that we go on after being involved in an event and continue to provide care. And so the question arises, after we as healthcare professionals are involved in a really stressful or traumatic clinical event, am I in the right frame of mind to go forward and to provide safe, competent, individualized care to that patient? Or am I likely to subject myself to making an error or providing suboptimal care. That's one category of third victims. Another category lies within the organization where the event occurs. And so if our healthcare organizations abandon their employees as second victims, this can have a negative infectious effect on the organizational culture as a whole, as opposed to reaching out and acknowledging that these events are happening and that employees need some form of support. 
And then that third category of third victims lies with the individuals that closely navigate the emotional impact of the employees who are involved. So typically this encompasses risk managers or patient safety officers. But I challenge us to also think about, as we talk about this concept today, peer supporters. So individuals who have stepped up to serve in a role that they want to reach out to people involved in these events. I challenge us to also include those individuals as the third set of victims because reaching out in a proactive manner to people who have been involved in these events can be emotionally draining on that category of people also. Robin, what are some of the symptoms that manifest themselves or these folks experience? The most cited symptom, anecdotally, and what the literature supports is that of isolation. So after we are involved in these events, a natural tendency, and we don't know if people are doing this to cope or if people don't know where they can turn to talk about how they're feeling, is avoidance or isolation in both personal and professional realms of life. Hmm. Other common symptoms are anxiety, guilt, shame. Many people are in, overcome with professional self-doubt. We start to question our professional competency and our knowledge base. Some people are so affected that unfortunately, they choose to leave their chosen career altogether. Wow. And unfortunately, many people turn to suicide. Wow. You know, I remember the story about the nurse who gave the overdose of heparin who was, I mean, what a very experienced nurse in the 30 year range. And she resorted to suicide. So yeah, very sad story, Sharon, that you bring up Kim Hyatt. She was a nurse out in Seattle, like you said, for Mm -hmm. 30 years. And unfortunately, after she made that medical error, she was abandoned as a second victim rather than supported. In fact, any future nursing job, she was told that she would have to be supervised when administering any medication. And that's just a prime example, one of many, that really, you know, manifest how we can do better. You know, we can support each other in a much better manner. Well, medicine by and large is punitive. And I think, and this is Sharon Pierce talking you know what the the errors are what a hundred thousand people they say a year die because of medical errors well we're not looking at our processes and how those errors occur say the way they do in aviation because we're so punitive about it and i think there's a stigma in admitting that something went wrong. And what I mean by that is we've all had things happen. If you have given anesthesia long enough, you've had something happen. Well, let me tell you what, I turned right around and I was given another anesthetic right afterwards. And there's almost a stigma in admitting that you're not capable of doing that. And I, for one, have been just as guilty. But tell me a little bit about how my next patient may have suffered because I just transported one to the ER that flatlined because <laughs> I do office-based anesthesia, you know. So tell me how my next patient may have suffered. Yeah, so 
if you are totally preoccupied and a common symptom that I didn't mention earlier is where we just mull this event over and over in our mind, right? And we have all of these questions going through our head and it just, it takes us away from being that healthcare provider in the moment, right? And so there's no evidence out there, unfortunately, yet fortunately, illustrating that we do make more errors or provide suboptimal care to those patients. But anecdotally and qualitatively, if we sit here and talk about our experiences, I think that you would agree, Sharon, in that event, you're not in the right frame of mind. Like you would have benefited from maybe five to 15 minutes of an opportunity to regroup or to reflect on what happened. And Dr. Gazzoni is a, a physician out East who did a study looking at nationwide anesthesiology. The dog does not like that. Oh you gosh. said anesthesiologist. Have you trained the dog to do that? <laughs> anesthesiologist. <laughs> Growl at him. Yep. If Jasper doesn't hear nurse anesthesiologist, we got barking going on. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Now my husband's home. Anyways. Hello, honey. Um, you know, <laughs> hey, honey, I'm home. <laughs> He's going to hear your voice and know exactly who's on this. <laughs> uh, okay. So back to your point about how does being involved affect subsequent patient care? There's a few studies out there that did show within the first four hours of being involved in an event, about 60% of providers feel as though they didn't have the right frame of mind to provide competent care. That's a huge percentage of affected individuals. Wow. Interestingly <laughs> enough, the incident that I am talking about, I rode in the ambulance with the patient to the ER, and then I'm there and I don't have a way back. And in the South, whenever ambulance is called fire, also comes out too. It's just the way it is. It's the South. I didn't say I understood it. But so it was so nice that the EMS guys took me back to the facility and I was pretty distraught. And they were so nice to me about the whole thing. And looking back, you know, they, I don't know why all EMS are not tra traumatized at all times because they see things really gritty, gritty things. Yeah. yeah. But they were just absolutely wonderful to me and gave me a ride back. And I said, I just pushed this kid over the cliff. And he said, no, he was standing on the cliff. It was a kid who had longstanding diabetes and did not take care of himself. As soon as we get into the ER, everybody's like, oh, yeah, we know and we see him all the time mm. kind of oh. thing. It didn't make me feel any better, but in that regard, but I just remember. So I, I wonder if EMS has a better grasp on this than we do as healthcare providers. I don't know that answer. I don't know if you know that answer, but it'd be interesting. I've learned a lot kind of in regards to EMS. You know, this program that I developed just recently became available throughout our Mayo Enterprise. And in doing that over the past year, I've met and worked with a lot of our first responders, light crew members, and our ambulance crew. And no, they do not have a good grasp on this at all. In fact, they are hurting very bad. And there's been high interest 
in this program. And luckily we've gotten many of our paramedics to become trained peer supporters so that they have heightened surveillance strategies to reach out after these really intense and traumatic situations that they encounter. I'd like to go back to the part about mulling over the incident. You know, and as anesthesia providers, we are taught to go over and over and over everything so it doesn't happen again. I mean, our own M&M meetings that we have every single week, do you think that plays into that too? I do. I think that plays a large role. And the other thing that I think plays a huge part is the fact that many of us in anesthesia are perfectionistic people, Mm. type (laughs) A. And, you know, we have a lot of compassion for each other. I think we have a ways to go to possess compassion for ourselves, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is an interesting phenomenon. I think, you know, we're really good at caring for others. But when it comes to caring for ourselves, it's hard to speak up and hard to reach out. Well, and you, you expect perfection from yourself or, or, or damn near it anyway. So, As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. Robin, what type of events do you see kind of leading to this emotional distress and so forth? Can we talk through that a little bit? I mean, Sharon kind of gave you know, an example there, but what other things are you seeing out there? Yeah, so over the first two years of the program, we did a retrospective review of what types of events led to requests for peer support. By far, the number one type of event was losing a patient in the perioperative period of care. Mm -hmm. The second most common was unanticipated cardiac arrest. I don't know when you'd anticipate that, but that was what was most cited. And then the third type of event was any unanticipated outcome involving a pediatric patient. Mm -hmm. Now, of interest, too, over the last year, we've seen an increase in violent patient encounters, which is something that our nursing colleagues are seeing in the nursing units and the ICUs. Our patient safety colleagues are seeing that. But in anesthesia, this is a new phenomenon uh, in the operating room arenas. And it's interesting to see an increase in that trend. Talk about those violent patient encounters to me in the operating room. I mean, outside of emergence delirium. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, those can be pretty violent, but I assume you're talking pre-induction here. Yes. So we've had a couple recent encounters. And right now I'm speaking just with um, the perioperative phase. You know, I could 
our PICU colleagues, our pediatric intensive care unit colleagues, have a lot of stories about violent patient encounters, family members and patients themselves. But as far as us as nurse anesthetists encountering violent patients, we've had a couple where people with deep brain stimulators and neurologic procedures going on had to come back for a procedure and they just, they felt overcome. They felt out of control. And their way of showing that was to inflict violence among any team member that they could. Mm. So Mm. abruptly getting up off of the table. And honestly, Sharon, I've never seen a ketamine dart used. I've heard about them. But in 20 years of anesthesia, I have never had the opportunity to see that. And I just heard of that from one of our student registered nurse anesthetists. Oh, yes. I've used lots of ketamine darts because I used to do pediatric dental anesthesia in the office of mentally retarded kids. And some of them are bigger Mm. than I am. And that's the only way Mm. that I'm running down the hall behind them with ketamine darts going right through their clothes. Slow them down a little bit. So, yeah, ketamine darts are hugely, hugely effective. But you know, I really hadn't given much thought to the violence piece because if anybody's got an IV, I can control them. <laughs> yes. And the other place that this is happening is in the pre-op holding area, uh, uh, unfortunately. Right. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's some recent literature out there on how second victim peer support programs are seeing a trend in activations at Johns Hopkins and at the University of Missouri for violent patient encounters overall. Is this increasing during COVID, do you think? Because I think people are, well, that's a whole other podcast. I I don't think we know everything that's coming out of COVID and won't for a few years. But people just seem to be. They're more on um, edge. Yeah. Yeah. Less patient. Yeah. Yeah. You know, other events, too, that have led to activations, um, like interpersonal dynamics of a team that, let's say, a difficult airway where Mm -hmm. the team dynamics between those involved was less than par or suboptimal. We've had activations for anesthesia residents. Our student nurse anesthetists have used the program quite a bit. And those types of events, a lot of interpersonal things um, or just errors are another type of thing that lead to us feeling not so good. So, Robin, you keep talking about this program. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit more about the program? Sure. So the second victim peer support program that I developed closely resembles the RISE program at Johns Hopkins or the 4U program at the University of Missouri Healthcare System. Luckily, we have great colleagues throughout reputable institutions throughout our country that are willing to share models that have worked. And so the HELP program stands for Healing Emotional Lives of Peers. Hmm. And that actually was named by my daughter, who was 12 at the time. (laughs) And it's a three-tiered system of support escalating from Tier 1 to Tier 2 to Tier 3. So Tier 1 support encompasses just an outreach from anybody at the local level where the event occurs. So rather than ignoring the fact that gosh, this terrible event just occurred. I wonder how Sharon is doing. Right. We need people to stop waiting for people to show emotional distress and to assume that this event is going to evoke an emotional response in Sharon 
And so reach out and say, hey, Sharon, I heard you were involved in that event. How are you doing? That's tier one. Tier two support then adds on a layer of an invitation to engage in a supportive one-on-one conversation with a peer who has been trained in the content that we're talking about today, along with practicing and rehearsing certain skill sets that we're looking for in our trained peer supporters. And then tier three utilizes existing supportive resources in our institution. So things like Chaplin or our employee assistance program, which way too many people don't even know it exists. And if they do know it exists, we don't know how to contact that resource. Right. And so it's this escalating three-tiered system of support. And so when an event occurs, ideally people reach out rather than ignore it. At the same time, we've created a website that anybody can access. They go on that website and they complete an activation request. We do have someone, there are, there are 10 of us anesthesia providers, five nurse anesthetists and four physician anesthesiologists that take call. And what that means is that they're watching this inbox, which recently became a SharePoint file for new activations. And when I'm on call and I see an activation come through, my job and the goal of the program is to mobilize resources reach out to an anesthesia colleague who has been trained as a peer supporter so that they can reach out to the affected individuals within 24 to 72 hours. So Robin, you mentioned a couple things that healthcare institutions are doing to kind of help support the folks that are going through these traumatic events. Is there anything else that you're seeing out there that institutions are doing to kind of implement some of these policies that you're talking about? Jeremy, I wish that there was a lot happening. There's a lot of talk, right? Like this month is Violent Patient Awareness Month. Next month, there's huge initiatives going on for healthcare provider well-being. Unfortunately, like Sharon mentioned earlier, there's this huge stigma still of healthcare professionals not being able to say, I'm not doing okay, or I need to talk to somebody. And so other than awareness campaigns, both nationally and within institutions, I'm not sure what more is being done. Now, I can say that more and more types of programs like the peer support second victim programs are being developed and deployed at many institutions. In fact, there are many colleagues that travel the country and help hospitals set these systems up. Now, you talked about your website. What is that website? Yeah, so the website is actually an intranet website. So it's, uh, it's housed yeah. within, yeah, the Mayo Enterprise wall, right? But I know, so I can't even I can't even get you on it, Sharon. But it basically describes what is this program all about? What are our goals? What can one expect? And and it's the main way that people can initiate that outreach from a trained peer supporter. So, I mean, I'm just thinking here, I really don't know the answer to this question. Does the ANA have anything around this, Robin? I mean, is there are there other resources available? And I'm also thinking that since this is more of an internal program at Johns Hopkins, you know, if other institutions or other people out there listening to this and want to do something like this at their institution, should they reach out to you? Should they reach out to the ANA? How, how would they go about doing this? So our 
professional organization, the AANA, has amazing resources on provider well-being. It focuses on, you know, peer assistance in each state. I think each state has two CRNAs that serve. Most of it is regarding like substance abuse, but in recent years, they've really advocated at our meetings and Sharon, I think you can attest to this, that we should call them even if we're experiencing second victim phenomenon. Hmm. And so I hope people are utilizing that. Once again, though, Jeremy, like highly unlikely for us to be the person to initiate this process. Right. More right. commonly, what we're seeing in these types of programs are colleagues reaching out for other colleagues. So I'm not going to ask Sharon, Sharon, are you okay if I seek help for you? Because what's Sharon going to say? She's going to oh, say no, no but you know what? She needs no, all no, the help I'm she can get. Stand so. for, right? <laughs> no, what? <laughs> I was like, I don't know that either. Go ahead. You're leaving us in suspense here, Robin. I say it and you'll delete it? Yeah. Just say it. Fucked up, insecure, yeah. neurotic, and emotionally inept. <laughs> oh, I love it. Maybe we can just bleep it. I love that. Well, I in all like honesty, uh-huh. you know, when someone says they're fine in a very quick response, yeah. it's good for us to accept that but then check in with them a couple days later, right? Well, you know, again, I'm just kind of thinking, what you've studied this, obviously, and you know a lot about this. What do you see that, how do people that are going through this, how do they want people to support them? Mm-hmm. You know, what are they looking for that maybe, you know, people aren't picking up on or what are they desiring for help? So most people, and I I share anecdotal evidence, and I also share looking back at our two-year evaluations of the program, most people express gratitude for a colleague just reaching out and checking in with them and acknowledging that, yeah, this terrible thing just happened and someone doesn't care about the event. This is the other thing, Jeremy, to answer your question. People need other people to help them express their emotion. Because this emotional labor that we feel is intense and overwhelming. And so too often colleagues will say to each other, hey, what happened in that event? And instead of doing that, even though we're all curious and even though we love to know the details of the event, we really need to shift our focus and use techniques like silence, open-ended questions, active listening, Mm. active understanding, just being present emotionally and physically. So getting rid of that iPhone beeping, getting rid of the the pagers, the everything that I watch. I mean, we have so many yeah. interruptions these days. If we can find five minutes to be present for our hurting colleague and use techniques to get them to talk about how they're feeling, that is what is helping people move on and thrive after these events. And it's important too. like not everybody has really bad symptoms. Some people really grow after these events and they grow as both a human being, but even more so as a professional nurse anesthetist. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. 
From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. I want to circle back, Jeremy, you asked me like what resources are out there. If people want to start a program, how do they go about doing that? Right. There will be, I just got accepted in the AANA journal and my goal was to share my experience so that there's a lot of literature out there saying that institutions need these programs. But one of the biggest challenges there is financial support Mm. for an institutional level second victim peer support program. My paper really focuses on deploying and creating a program like this at the departmental level, Mm. which is very sustainable. And having peers with like specialties, like anesthesiologists, nurse anesthesiologists, physician anesthesiologists, we have shared experiences. And so those shared experiences and working closely together in geographic proximity really facilitates heightened surveillance. So we're well aware when these events occur. Mm -hmm. And we also should be able to find two to five minutes to approach each other in a face-to-face manner and share these experiences so that we can normalize what the affected colleague is feeling. It's almost like a decompression. I mean, you want to get it off your chest, you know, for lack of a better term. I mean, be there connect with someone, let them say what they want to say to help themselves feel better. Yeah. Yeah. And I would have done the wrong thing because I'm curious and I want to know for a couple of reasons. Yeah. Uh, Well, you know, you want to know so you can learn from the experience. And so I would have done and probably have done the wrong thing. Oh, my God, what happened? Tell me what happened. Yeah, yeah. And that was the wrong thing to do. And then you probably said, bless your little heart. It's so hard, Sharon. And I wouldn't say it's the wrong thing to do. I think we all are well-intentioned, right? You know, and we really, as healthcare providers, we want to fix our hurting colleague. And so I think we're all in progress, right? Yeah, we want to be perfect at this. And oftentimes when we are supporting a hurting colleague, it will start out with them sharing event Mm -hmm. details. And I'll listen as long as we're in a confidential and safe location, I will listen. And then when the opportunity arises, I'll say something like, wow, Sharon, that sounds like an absolutely traumatic situation. How did that make you feel? Hmm. And so, you know, listening to the details is okay, but then refocusing it and just shifting it to give your colleague an opportunity to just get that heaviness off their chest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Mm. I like the departmental piece of that. Now, on the flip side, I know that sometimes some of my colleagues have had an event. I may be working there later on, and I'll have a physician say to me, oh, Sharon, that would never happen to you because you're so good. I'm like, whoa, stop right now. If you give anesthesia long enough, 
something is always going to happen to you. And none of us should judge when somebody has an event because you can do all the right things and something can go wrong. And it was just the luck of the draw that day. So I'm not entertaining this conversation. It could happen to me too. And it could happen to you too. And don't you forget it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that might not be the way to handle that situation, but I am never going down that path about a colleague and having a bad event. Yeah. And our profession is one of the most humbling. Oh, you're not kidding. You yeah. think you intubate a snake and tomorrow <laughs> you can't get a tube in anybody. <laughs> uh, Robin, what were some of the challenges, you know, as you went through the implementation of this program as, as well? Because I'm sure it didn't go smoothly in every aspect. Uh, Jeremy, not at all. In <laughs> fact, one of the biggest challenges that I first encountered was resistance from some physician anesthesiologists. Shocker! Didn't, didn't think here's the dog bark again. Oh, sorry. was important, and luckily there were more physician colleagues in leadership positions who outweighed the few that had this yep. really strong feeling that we don't need this. The evidence is out there, right? And we learn when we go back to get our doctorate degree. We learn like take what's in the evidence and put it into practice. Mm-hmm. They asked me to conduct a large survey. And um, yes, it was another huge step, but I also think that there was a lot of benefit in doing this. We had a great response rate out of 600 individuals within our department, we got 60% to respond, which really shows that people wanna talk about this and people are hurting, right? 68% of our providers, both CRNAs and physician anesthesiologists could think of an event that impacted them emotionally. 65% said that we had inadequate supportive resources available. So although I couldn't just take what the evidence says and put it into practice, there were a lot of silver linings to this survey in that it started to change the culture and it started to get people to talk about what we don't talk about. That was one of the biggest challenges. Other cultural barriers, you know, you're going to have naysayers all over the place. No matter what you try to do, you're going to meet naysayers. And so I just had to accept that and move on. And I I have this motto where if we can start changing the culture one person at a time, it's going to have a trickle effect over time. And I think Aaron's going to talk about generational differences at some point with you guys, but we have really seen a difference in younger generations coming forward and attending these workshops on becoming a trained peer supporter and talking about how they were with a mentor who taught them not to talk about the emotional implications and to Mm. just get back on the horse and to keep on going. Wow. These younger generations who are all about work-life balance and health, they're signing up to be these peer supporters and they're really trying to help change that culture. The other big challenge was one of my biggest goals was to have representation from every discipline, meaning pediatrics, cardiac, obstetrics. Um, We have about 20 different divisions here at our practice. And so I really wanted male, female, physician, and nurse anesthesiologists serve in this role 
it's really hard to get your physician colleagues on board with this. And that's okay, because we have amazing nursing CRNAs serving in this role. But that was a challenge too. And then to get dedicated time, you know, all of us are so busy providing anesthesia. There needs to be some emphasis placed on time for professional development or things away from the bedside. Those were some of the biggest challenges and just the heterogeneity of people's schedules. So I have about 10 trained peer supporters in a high risk area like cardiac anesthesia. A lot of bad things happen there just naturally, right? Sicker patients. You know, our trained peer supporters were getting burnt out. And so how do we prevent our peer supporters becoming third victims to that? Well, one of our strategies was to conduct quarterly meetings with all of our peer supporters for three reasons. A, to work on our skill set, to do more role playing, to talk about compassion fatigue, or to have 15 minutes of education, but most importantly, to come together and to share stories and really support each other. And getting people to attend a meeting above and beyond is really hard. And so that's been a challenge. Now, COVID, it's And now we do it virtually, which has been a much better response. Tell us about the training that you're doing and what that entails. And I understand you said you've gone virtual, but how long is it, et cetera? Yeah. So the workshop is four hours in duration. To be honest, I wish it was eight hours. (laughs) And a lot of our attendants also say, I could have gone on for many more hours talking about this. Coming together with all types of disciplines, physician colleagues, secretaries, everybody, photographers, medical photographers, lawyers, coming together and sharing one thing that we all experience, no matter what the credentials are behind our name, is inspirational and humbling. So leadership asked me to condense the workshop to four hours out of respect for keeping people at the bedside. And so it's a four hour workshop and it's very interactive in nature. In 2018, it was in person, which was great. We used round table discussions. I was fortunate that about six of my colleagues came forward and allowed us to create videos of them sharing their second victim experiences, which are very mm-hmm. powerful. And it put them in a vulnerable spot, right? Sharing how they felt, sharing how they didn't feel supported. Or conversely, having some people come forward and sharing how it felt to have a colleague reach out and approach them. And so the videos are very powerful, very meaningful, and generate a lot of discussion. And then we also do um, role-playing exercises, which are awkward, but very effective. So for 15 minutes, you play the role of a peer supporter, and your partner plays the role of the second victim, and then you switch roles. And then we talk about that experience. And then dispersed throughout the four hours, there's some didactic traditional lecture format, talking about the background, the evidence, and the program logistics. So we did shift it to a virtual workshop, and we conducted 20 workshops last year. (laughs) Wow, that's a lot. We've had about almost 600 Mayo employees attend uh, my four-hour workshop. And we've had 70% of those people sign up to be trained peer supporters. Wow. So it's been amazing, right? A lot of work, but I've met some really neat 
people throughout the enterprise. Robin, when you when you kind of got going with this, did you did you expect this? Did you expect to be where you are right now with all this? No, Jeremy. In fact, I really just was focused on my anesthesiology colleagues. That's it. I wanted to make a difference right there. And then after the first year, the Children's Center here at Mayo had reached out to me and I couldn't say no. So we deployed it in the Children's Center. And then the Department of Obstetrics reached out to me. And then other nursing units reached out to me. And then one of our health systems, six affiliated rural hospitals and clinics reached out and we did get it deployed um, in Southwest Minnesota. But it got to a point where my volunteer bandwidth, I just, I had to, with the help of my husband's encouragement, start to say no. Yeah. And no, I didn't at all foresee this coming. I saw a lot of more barriers. And it wasn't until last March when I got a phone call at about 645 in the morning after COVID hit. It was one of our physician leaders within the enterprise in charge of enterprise well-being who had reached out and said, I acknowledge your program as a silo of excellence. Can you report to this meeting this morning and talk about how we can mobilize resources to get this available to all frontline providers throughout Mayo's enterprise. Wow. So that's pretty cool. It's been cool. It's been really interesting and just humbling. You know, when you meet a medical photographer who shares their story of how they feel like they're the forgotten second victim, right? They come in and they take photographs of the child that was abused or the baby that was stillborn, or the wedding in the ICU. And they come and they take these photos and they leave. And nobody even thinks about the impact that their involvement had on them, leaving that lasting imprint on them as a human being. And I mean, it's just, it goes on and on and on. The people that come forward and talk about their experience, it's, it's a huge problem. Yeah. And I think I referenced it in the title of this, like it's been deemed as the silent epidemic in healthcare or the invisible quality metric of patient safety. Yeah. And it, it, it's bad. You know, we need to do simple things like reaching out to each other and, and just asking, how are you doing? Yeah. How do you think this is going to play out with COVID and what we have been hearing about the nursing profession as a whole and I mean, there's some estimates that I've seen that 30% of nurses are going to get the job done during COVID and then they're going to leave their profession. And you know, that's what this is. They are clearly a second victim. Yeah. I think we have a lot of work to do, Sharon. It's very scary and sad, right? Like good people are going to leave an amazing profession. I think one of the things that we have to start doing is being proactive. And I think that's a cultural change. Mm -hmm. Um, But definitely, the more we talk about it, the more we get this out there at our at our educational offerings at divisional meetings, and even just in conversation, right, the more we talk about this, the more people are going to feel that it's okay to not be okay. When I did this, I chaired the state meeting in North Carolina a few years ago, and 
I had somebody come and talk about second victim and we hired a facilitator to come in and we had them, people talk about things that had happened to them. I mean, it was emotional. People were crying in this room, but I do think that it served a good purpose and she gave everybody a free space, I guess you could say, to do it. But it was very powerful. And anybody who's listening to this, it really worked for us in the state. And I'm assuming that once in-person meetings are back in, you're happy to come and speak. Absolutely. <laughs> especially, especially if it's in BAMP, which is where yeah. I met you. <laughs> That's a bonus, right? (laughs) Absolutely. But what better way to get this information out there is definitely face-to-face. So anybody that's listening, everybody seems to have my cell phone number. They can call me and I'll put you in touch with Robin (laughs) for sure. But this is information that, that needs to be pushed out some way. Yeah. And Sharon, I do want to pay tribute to a couple other CRNAs like Dr. Maria Van Pelt. Mm -hmm. Um, Lucy New and Bernadette Johnson, they've developed a program and Maria has spoken on this topic. Lynn Reed, you know, we have a lot of amazing colleagues who are really passionate and experts on the topic area, which is a great thing to know. Well, I know that Maria Van Pelt had to do CPR on her own husband. If that's not enough to um, push you into a second victim, um, Mm -hmm. I don't know, or, or, you know, I've done CPR on my own child and that was, I was a first victim, second victim, third victim, fourth victim with <laughs> that. I'd call yeah. the mental, mental institution about every other day and ask them if they had an empty bed. <laughs> yeah, I, that, needed to, I needed, yeah. I needed a bed after that one. So, yeah, mm. I can't even imagine. Well, you know, what I was alluding to at the beginning of the podcast, obviously, is Steve Mund, and, you know, he succumbed to PTSD, and that's a piece of this, or is this something that can be an outcome of it? And, you know, we've got to address it better as a profession, and you are definitely taking steps in that direction, and we we appreciate it greatly. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I think, you know, right now with COVID and all of the issues going on in our nation, like who wouldn't benefit from a phone call or a colleague reaching out at work, just saying, you know, Jeremy, how are you doing? Yeah. You know, I think we need to remember that. Like, there's very few people, someone may look at us odd and be like, why is she asking me that? But there's just so much turmoil right now in life that peer support goes a long way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Robin, this is amazing work. And, you know, as we kind of wrap this up, is there anything you'd like to conclude on as or leave our our listeners with as uh, about this program? I'd love to say just do it. You know, rather than wondering how somebody is doing, be it an event in life, an event at work, or just you, you know, instead of just mulling this over in your mind, pick up the phone, take a couple steps toward your colleague, 
and ask that question, you know, how's life going or how are you doing? You know, and the other thing is just be proactive. We can't wait for people to show symptoms that they're hurting or emotionally distressed. We need to assume that losing a child in the operating room or experiencing malignant hyperthermia, whatever it is, is extremely stressful and that emotions are likely to be evoked. And so don't wait for people to show signs, just approach them and get them to talk about how they're feeling. I think that is very well said. And again, Robin, thank you so much for being on the show with us today and leaving our listeners with this very, very important information and all that you're doing to support CRNAs and other healthcare professionals uh, across the country. We want to thank you for that. Thank you, Jeremy. And thank you, Sharon. Well, Sharon, I think that's a wrap. I believe so. We want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and want to support us, you know the single best way to do that, right, Sharon? Well, I know. I'm just waiting on you to tell them. (laughs) Well, we want them to tell others, right? Because we're in the top 50 medical podcasts and we'd like to be in the top 10. Mm-hmm. On our way to on the way to number one. There you go. Okay. All right. Me well. Okay. All right. <laughs> so want to thank everybody for listening. Up. Oh, did someone say anesthesiologist? Anesthesiologist. Oh, perfect timing. <laughs> Until next time. It's a wrap. <laughs>Thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit osaemr.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, 
For CRNAs, data is destiny. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.